Their autopsies reveal that they had both died of severe malnutrition. When, a, when authorities searched their home, they found several paper bags filled with cash, and they had $40,000 in cash in their house, but they died of severe malnutrition. How foolish it would be to die of starvation when you have plenty of money to buy food. In 1916, a woman named Hattie Green died. When she did, it was discovered that she had left an estate valued at $100 million. We're talking about 1916. The estate was worth $100 million. Today, that's a lot of money, but back then, that's a whole lot of money. And this enormous amount, we look at this, and Hattie Green may have been wealthy, but she was known for how cheap she lived. She would often eat cold oatmeal because it cost too much to heat the water to cook it. And once her son suffered a severe leg injury, and she spent so much time trying to find a free clinic to take him to, that they ended to amputate his leg when she had plenty of money. She even hastened her own death by allowing herself to get worked up into a fit of rage in an argument over skim milk because it's cheaper than whole milk. Hattie Green was a lady who possessed great wealth, but she didn't have the ability to tap into it. The book of Ephesians was written to people just like that. This letter from Paul was written around 61 to 63 AD when Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And this morning as we dive in, this is introduction and the first two verses we'll get to today. I'm a, I am not a teacher-preacher. I'm a preacher. But today, I'm going to warn you as we get into the message today, it's going to be a teaching sermon to introduce the book and to get through the first little bit. Next week, we'll get to preaching, and we'll, we're going to go through paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse, through the book of Ephesians. Today, we'll get through verse number two. Next week, we start verse number three. We're going to be in verse number three through verse number seven for three weeks. Now, if the Lord comes before that time, some of you can have my notes and meet here. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, you'll all be there too. We'll all be out of here. And I'd much rather the Lord come than finish up my sermon series. But if he doesn't come, we'll keep preaching anyways till he comes. And so today it's going to be, like I said, a lot of information, little, we'll dive into the scriptures here in just a couple minutes. So bear with me today. Next week, we will get into the preaching and see some wonderful truths. But there'll be some preaching points and there's something for everyone in the message this morning. It was written while Paul was in prison in Rome. We saw the city of Ephesus and saw where it was located. We see the temple of Diana was a big deal there. Acts chapter 19, if you remember, and it talks about, and they use the word riot. The thing that happened there with Paul, the scene that was caused, the silversmith, all these different things. You saw that, um, that um, theater, they called it, that could seat 25,000. That's the spot right there where all that happened with Paul, right in that area right there. And so we look at the city. They had a population of probably 300,000 people. And it was a city that was deep in paganism. Deep, And when you're deep in paganism, immorality is going to follow and wickedness. The city had all the things it was known for. In Acts chapter 16, we see Paul was about to commence his second missionary journey. And he thought about going to Asia, Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go at that time. So he starts the missionary journey. And then I believe, as you read the scriptures, that um, the gospel makes its way to Ephesus. I think Aquila and Priscilla 
were part of the reason that that happened, Acts chapter number 18. And then we see at the end of Paul's second missionary journey that Paul makes it to Ephesus in chapter 19 of Acts, and he's there for three years with the people there preaching the gospel and helping this church get on its feet. When Paul left and departed from there, he left Timothy there to help keep an eye on doctrine. Timothy would have been the pastor of the church there. The church, as you read through 1 Timothy and things, you see some issues that plagued the church at Ephesus. There was some false teaching by Hymenius and Alexander. That's found in 1 Timothy 1, verse number 20. The church also had problems with legalism and false doctrine and foolish arguments among the members. So here's a young church that had some problems in it. And let me just say this this morning. If you're looking for the perfect church, Victory Baptist Church is not the perfect church. Number one, the pastor is far from perfect. Number two, you all are far from perfect. And when we put imperfection together, it's not going to be perfect. Someday when we all get to heaven and what a day of rejoicing that's going to be, we will have the perfect leader and our glorified bodies that put on incorruption and we'll have the perfect called out assembly with the Lord. Till then, we just do the best we can and if we're filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, we're not going to get so frustrated with one another and we just do this thing of sharing the gospel with everyone and reach people for Christ and keep moving forward for the Lord. So this church, there were some issues. But one of the things that I believe, I talked about that earlier, that couple, that elderly couple, died of malnutrition, but had $40,000 in the house. This church in Ephesus was just like that elderly couple. This church in Ephesus was just like Hattie Green. She was rich, and they were rich in the things of God, but they didn't know how rich they truly were. This book came to them to let them know just what they had in Jesus and who they were in Jesus and how to spend what they possessed in Jesus Christ. We see right away as we dive into the book, and I'll give you four points, and we'll go through verse 1 and 2 in a little bit. I'm giving you still some more background. We see that Ephesians was written <coughs> in verse number 1. This book is addressed to the saints, which are at Ephesus. This letter was written to the church. But then you keep reading, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. But it wasn't just to them alone. There are many scholars out there that believe that this was a circular letter, and that it was copied many times and sent to all the churches in Asia Minor. Many ancient copies of the letter don't have the name Ephesus on it. It's blank. And that might be that reason and whatever the case may be. But this letter is not just written to one local congregation. It's verse number one says it's written to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So yes, this book was good for Ephesus and written for them. But I'll tell you something this morning. The book of Ephesians was written for us today. There's powerful truths. One of the things that most Christians miss out on today is understanding what they are in Christ who they are, and what we have in Christ. And that's what this book relates to us as we go through. Ephesians was written to teach us all about whom we are in Jesus Christ. And not only was it written to teach us whom we are in Jesus Christ, what we have because of our relationship with him, and then how to use what he has given to us for his glory. There's, in a nutshell, the book of Ephesians. So my series is done. 
have a great day. We'll see you next Sunday. No, that's just the simple overview. We're going to break it down and break it down and break it down. Ephesians was written, think about this, to teach us about whom we are in Christ Jesus, what we have because of our relationship with him, and how to use what he's given us for the glory of God. Today we'll begin a series and go verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through the book of Ephesians. Today I'm just going to introduce a few things and tell you some great truths that we'll uncover through the book. Many people have called the book of Ephesians, they've given it many different titles like the Alps of the New Testament, the Heavenly Epistle, the Crown and Climax of Pauline Theology. One man even called it the divinest composition of man. Ephesians falls into two parts. Chapter number one through chapter number three are doctrinal in nature, whereas chapter four through chapter six, they're practical in nature. So the first three chapters tell us what we have. The last three tell us what to do with what we have. Does that make sense? First three chapters tell us what we have. The last three chapters tell us what to do with what we have. The first three chapters reveal the riches in Christ, our riches in Christ. The last three tell us how to spend what we've been given in Christ Jesus. This book, the book of Ephesians, declares and reveals the riches of God's grace to the believer. It teaches us what we have, beca- what we have because of who we are in Jesus. Throughout the book, there are many different themes and different verses and different things that are mentioned. This book is a book about riches. It says in chapter 1, verse number 7, talks about the riches of his grace. Chapter number 3, verse number 8, talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16, talks about the riches of his glory. And this book is a book also about the fullness we enjoy in our relationship with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16, be filled with the fullness of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Chapter 5, verse number 18, be filled with the Spirit. These riches and the fullness arise from several things that are mentioned throughout the book. It comes from His grace. It comes from His peace. It comes from His will. It comes from His pleasure and His purpose. It comes from His glory. It comes from His calling. It comes from His power and His strength. It comes from His love. It comes from His workmanship. It comes from His spirit. It comes from His offering and sacrifice. And it comes from His armor. Do you realize everything has to do with Him? Realize that this morning. It's what He's done. Ephesians mentions riches five times. Grace is mentioned 12 times in this short book. (coughs) Glory is mentioned eight times. Fullness or being filled is mentioned six times. In Christ or in Him is mentioned 12 times. And the idea of in, with, or through Christ is found some 30 times in this small book. This is a book about the overwhelming, infinite wealth we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, believer, if you're saved, you are rich in Christ today. And a lot of Christians don't know it. The Bible tells, do you have Romans 8, 17? Back there. The Bible says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. 1 Peter 1, verse number 4. 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. We are rich, blessed people today. The book of Ephesians is a book about the riches and fullness of God. But it's also a book about divine mystery. Say, well, what do you mean by, by divine mystery? No, the word mystery, when the Bible refers to a mystery, it speaks of a truth previously hidden, but now revealed. So when it comes to God, there are many mysteries. And those mysteries in Scripture can be revealed in three different ways, or you could label them in three different categories. The first category when it comes to mysteries is this. There are mysteries that no one but God has ever or will ever know. The Bible tells us Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are some things that we will just never know. A lot of times we see, I see people trying to figure out why God does this. Don't worry about trying to figure out what God does. You will never fully understand God. Men, you're never going to fully understand your wife. I'll tell you this, you've got more chance of fully understanding your wife than you do understanding God, but we'll just stop there so I don't get any ladies mad at me this morning. And uh, <coughs> when we look at this here, there are some divine secrets that God reveals to no one at any place or any time. Those are his. The second category or the second type of mystery includes those things which are hidden from most people but revealed to a select group. That would be a great, a great way to look at that. All men know something about God. The Bible says in everyone there's a little bit of light in John chapter number 1. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse number 19, the scripture tells us, because that which was made known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Verse number 20, the scripture says here, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No one has an excuse to say, well, I just didn't know about God. Because God's given everyone just a little bit of light. And we see the invisible things of him from creation of this world, they're clearly seen. The heavens declare the glory of God. No one has an excuse, the Bible says. But do you realize something? The natural man does not understand the things of God. That's when we talk about mystery. So mystery, there's some things that God only knows and he's not going to share with us. And there are things that, the second type of mystery, there's some things that are revealed to some and hidden to others. This world, those that are in darkness, they're blinded to the things of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verse number 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Now some of you can think of this morning, remember before salvation, you would pick up the Bible, you'd read the Bible, or read something about it, and you'd be like, this just doesn't make a whole lot and i remember a while back i was witnessing to a man and he got saved and he started coming to church and he started growing in the things of god he's like pastor i would try to read my bible before i got saved but i just didn't understand a lot of it but now i don't understand all of it but it's so much more clear to me now because the natural man cannot understand the things of god that's why this world doesn't get the way god operates this world doesn't understand the fact that they God today. You know, we look in our world today and we look at just this, just yesterday, two shootings in El Paso and then in Ohio. <clears throat> and most people say, get rid of 
not getting into an argument with anybody on anything this morning. But you do that, people will still find guns to do what they want to do. That's not the issue this morning. The issue is the heart of man. And the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And the heart of man that you could go and shoot someone and have no remorse when you do it, there's something and sick with that mind. The man who did it in Ohio, he killed his own sister. The heart's wicked. The heart has so many issues. That's the problem today. And we can thank ourselves in our country because we take God and kick him out of our schools. We kick him out of everything that our young people are in. And what do you expect to happen when you take God and throw him out of everything? Society decays. But the world doesn't get it because they don't see the things of God. But then today in our world, all we see is all these natural people proclaiming what they say is truth, and then we hear no Christians stand up for the truth. We know the truth. They don't understand it. We see the first time there are some things that no one but God has ever or will ever know. Second type is those that are hidden from most people but revealed to a select group. <coughs> and then the third kind of mystery revolves around truth that has been hidden for a time and then revealed to the people of God. This is the type of mystery we find in the book of Ephesians here. Now, the book of Ephesians mentions the word mystery six times. Chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 3. Verse 4, verse 9. Verse chapter 5, verse 32, and then chapter 6, verse number 19. But what's the mystery that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians? It's found in Ephesians chapter number 3. We will get to Ephesians 3 in several weeks, but just go to chapter number 3 so you can see what I'm talking about real quick, and then we'll go back to chapter 1, and I'll give you four points, and we'll be done this morning. <clears throat> chapter 3, verse number 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles... If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Look at, look at, what the, look at verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of this promise in Christ by the gospel. That's the mystery right there. The ancient Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a king who would come and would reign over Israel. They were expecting a king to come and to set up his earthly kingdom and to destroy all their enemies. That's why you heard the disciples often, Lord, when are you going to set up your kingdom? When's your kingdom coming? That's what they thought. When their Messiah came, he wasn't who they expected him to be. He was, they just weren't looking. The Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. They refused to recognize him as king. When Jesus was before Pilate, they said, We have no king but Caesar. And then the Jews watched as their king was crucified on the cross. The Jews went on looking for a kingdom and for a king, and they are still looking today for a kingdom and a king to come. 
what the Jews failed to see was that Christ was the king that had to come and had to be slain. But what they didn't understand was the gap of time till the kingdom's established. They didn't understand the mystery of what we live in today. They thought he would come, set up his kingdom, everything would be great. They didn't realize he would come, die, go back to heaven, prepare a place, and then we'd have over 2,000 years of a church age. They didn't get it. And his kingdom will be, someday it will be complete, but not as of yet. We see the church is mentioned in the book of Ephesians. It's called a body. It's a new concept. Old Testament, when God's people were used, God used metaphors in the Old Testament to describe his people. He called them a vine. He called them a bride in Hosea. He called them a flock. And he also called them a kingdom in the book of Exodus. The church, there are several metaphors in the New Testament. A vine in John 15, the church is his bride. It's called a flock and it's also called a kingdom. But his church is also called his body. The Bible tells us 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 27, Now are ye the body of Christ and members in particular. He dwells in us through his spirit. He energizes us with his life. And as we yield to him and let him work, and, or as we yield to him and allow him to live through us, he's seen actively in the things that we do. I want to take a look this morning at these first two verses. And as I said, this is all foundational, leading into several great truths that we'll see over several weeks. But I want to go back to chapter number one and look at these two verses and give you a few thoughts, and we'll be done this morning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. As we dive in this morning, we think about the author of this book. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We know that God, these are his words that he used a human instrument to pen. He used Paul. When we think of Paul, Paul's name means little. When we think of Paul, there's lots of things that we think of. Think of him before he came to Christ, Saul. He was, there were several things that he talks about in the book of Philippians and goes through as well-educated. He was, a, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a prominent Jewish leader. He hated the followers of Jesus. He did his very best to persecute those who were preaching Christ. Remember, he was going to arrest some Christians in Damascus. When on Damascus Road, he met Jesus that day, and Jesus forever changed his life. And I'll tell you something, what people need today is they need Jesus. They need a change. Amen. That's what I needed in my life, and I thank God for the day I got saved. I thank God for, as we see here, as we see with Paul, and Paul gets saved, and the Lord used Paul. And Paul was a great preacher to Christians. Wrote so many books of the New Testament. God used him in a great way this morning. Most of us, when we heard the gospel for the first time, it was in Paul's letters that were written. The book of Romans, the book of Ephesians here. We heard the gospel. Paul, we get our church doctrine from the Pauline epistles. That's where church doctrine comes from. Churches have problems when they get their church doctrine from the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the history of the church, and the first time things happen, a little different. We get our doctrine from Paul's epistles. 
we see that God used and we see that we know a little bit about the writer. <coughs> but let's look at four things real quick out of these two verses, and we'll be on our way. Number one, we see that Paul has something to say. He has a word about authority here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul reveals his dual source of authority. He writes as one who must be heard. He writes as one who has been sent for a purpose of declaring truth. First thing that Paul does, he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle refers to a sent one. It's used, the words used in the New Testament to refer to those men who were chosen and were foundational in the church. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, verse number 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. They were men who received direct revelation from God and gave it to his people. They gave us the apostles' doctrine. There are only 13 or 14 men in history that were ever apostles. And if you say 13, fine. If you say 14, fine. I'm not going to argue with anybody because you're probably smarter than I am anyways. We know the 12, Judas kills himself. And we know that the, that the apostles drew straws, no, cast lots, and Matthias became the next apostle. I don't see, personally, where he was ever called by Christ specifically to be an apostle. So to me, Matthias is not an apostle. The apostles chose him, which great, he can be a disciple of Christ, but he's not an apostle. The difference between a disciple and an apostle, are you ready? An apostle had to be called by the risen Christ to do something. They had to see him. So guess what? There are no apostles today. And if anyone claims to be an apostle of Jesus Christ today, they are a deceiver and they're a and they should not be followed. The last apostle we see is Paul. Remember Damascus Road? Jesus called him. He's an apostle. So we see one of the reasons why we should read this book is because the authority on which it comes from, Paul's an apostle. He's been called by God, by Christ, to, to be an apostle. But then look at the next thing it says here. Paul is a man sent from God for a special mission with divine authority. He also tells us he's an apostle by the will of God. This reminds us as readers that Paul had not chosen this path for himself. The Lord had chosen this for him. <coughs> Paul's own testimony in the book of Timothy tells us what he and who he really was. And his own testimony reveals what he knew to be true about himself. Paul doesn't use these words to boast and say, hey, I'm an apostle, and God chose me to do this. That's not why he's doing it. It's the authority for the book. Because something, I had someone just ask me a couple weeks ago. They said, Pastor, how do we know that we have all the books of the Bible? Who decided what books were included to be in the Bible? And that's, you know, that's a, that's a fairly good question. Because some will say there was some Catholic council that got together and decided which books would be in there. And people have all these different things, and they could go back and trace to um, the year 120 and some things back then. They had these books all set up and everything. You say, how do you know that we have everything we're supposed to have in the Bible? Number one, and I give you about 20 points, but I'm only going to give you one or two this morning. 
The God of heaven that spoke the universe into existence, the God who said that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, the God who said that not one jot or one till would pass away, and the grass with a flower faith, but the word of God would endure forever, you're going to tell me he forgot to put one book in the Bible that we hold in our hands. No, sorry, that's not going to happen. Oh, he forgot. Oh, yeah, he forgets. Now, if you or I wrote the Bible and pieced it all together, yeah, we could forget a book or two or three or four or five, but not God. He's given us all that we need in the Bible. Well, how do we know? And, you know, and so, you know, so the guy was asking me these questions, and I said, we have the Bible, and we have all the books that are supposed to be there because God is sovereign. That's why we have. He's like, that's not a good answer for people who don't believe in God. I said, well, they're not going to believe the Bible anyways. But anyways, that's another argument for another time. So, well, how, what backing, how would they know what to include in Scripture and what books were false? Okay, we look at the beginning of this book here. Look at the divine authority here. An apostle and by the will of God. Divine authority and the inspiration that's present in this book. And that's why Ephesians is one of the books included in Scripture, because it is Scripture. And I am 100% sure in Christian this morning, there might be some scientists somewhere, some archaeologists, oh, I found a new book that belongs in the Bible. They don't know what they're talking about. You have everything you need in this book right here. 66 books. Fall in love with it. Read it. Spend time in it. And don't worry about any other books. We found the book of Judas. Oh, yeah, that's just the book I really want to read. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. I want to read about Judas and all he say. He wasn't even saved. Think about that one there. But anyways, we'll just leave all that and forget of all that, about all that. We see a word about authority, an apostle by the will of God. Second thing that we see, number two, is we see, to wor- see a word about the addressees, the one he addresses in the book. We see there in verse number one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul goes from the dual source of authority. He issues a designation concerning the recipients of the letter. Now look what it says. He calls them saints and calls them the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now let's think about saints for a minute and the faithful in Christ Jesus. We are called saints. Get this now. Are you ready? There is a lot of religion out there that gives a falsehood on who saints are and how to become a saint. No pope decides who becomes a saint after they're dead. And no statue you build and pray to some saint is going to get you anywhere closer to God in any form or sense. The word saint is used here. Guess who's a saint this morning? We are. Now, if you're not saved, sorry, you ain't no saint. If you are saved this morning... You're a saint. Think about that for a minute. When people hear the word, they think of dead religious people who've been exalted by the church, but that's not what the Bible says. When the Bible talks about the word saint means a most holy thing, it speaks of something that's been sanctified and set apart for God's exclusive use. It speaks about this morning how God sees you and I that are saved. Every person who is saved by the grace of God and washed in the Lamb is a holy thing. Think about that for a minute. You're set apart for the glory of God and exclusively His for use. The word saint describes what God has done for us in Jesus. When we came to God by faith, 
God saved our soul and God imputed the righteousness of Jesus to us. What a blessing that is. We have His righteousness. When God looks at Brian as a saved child of God, he sees a saint, a set-apart, holy thing. Am I a holy person? I sure wish I was all the time. I wish I was, and I wish I could tell you, man, your pastor, he's, he's holy. My genes might be holy, but that's about it. You know what I'm saying? None of us are holy. But you're a saint. You're set apart. You're a holy thing because of what he did for you. And when God sees Brian, he doesn't see Brian's righteousness. He sees Christ's righteousness imputed to me. And what a blessing that is and how rich that is. You see the word saint, and that's what a true saint is. If you're saved today, you are a saint. What a blessing. And then Paul calls the saint the faithful in Christ Jesus. And while the word saint describes our standing before the Lord, the word faithful should describe our activities in this world that we live See, before we're saved and sanctified by God, you think about this, because we were saved, we've been saved and sanctified by God, we are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And as a result, we live distinct and different lives than the world around us. We should. In other words, those who know the Lord are his holy saints, and we should live like it. We see a word about authority. We see a word about the addressees. And then we see number three, a word of acknowledgement. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse number two, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers a greeting to the recipients of this letter. Paul extends a double blessing to the reader of this book. Paul greets them by saying, grace be to you. The word grace translated here means goodwill, loving kindness, favor. We use the word to speak of the Lord's work in saving us, keeping us, and changing our lives. We all know God's grace. It refers to the undeserved love and the favor of God for lost sinners. In that day, it was a common greeting, grace. Today, we say, hello, how are you? What are you doing? Now, think about this. Hello, how are you? What are you doing? Are really empty greetings to people. Hello, that's not really a very deep meaning greeting to anybody. They would use grace. So the word charis is actually what it is. When people in that culture met, they would say that, and that word was translated grace. In other words, I pray for you the best God can offer. What a way to greet somebody. That's a lot better than saying, hello, grace. Let me challenge you. Say that to someone when you greet them. Say grace. Say grace. You're going to get a weird look from people if you do that. And I already can tell we got a lot of weird people in the room this morning already, so we'll fit just well and fine. But think about this. If we were to greet one another with the grace of God, 
It might change the way we live just a little bit. It might make us be a little nicer to everyone and show a little grace. That's well, not a bad thought. So next time I'm going to say grace to everybody when you come in next week. We see grace be to you, and then we see, then Paul says, grace be unto you and peace. Someone once said, grace is the fountain of which peace is the stream. Because of God's grace, we can have peace with God. Because we have peace with God, we can have peace with our fellow man. It is the grace of God that brings us to God, and when we come to God, His grace is able to give us an abundance of peace in our hearts. Grace be to you and peace. We see a word about authority. We see a word to the addressees, a word of acknowledgement, and then number four and lastly, we see a word about the agent. Where does everything come from? Look at the end of verse number two. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's where it comes from. Everything Paul has said thus far flows from this source. God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. His authority, his calling, his sainthood, his faithfulness of the believers, the dual blessing of grace and peace, all comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. A relationship with God is only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. John 14, 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And over the next several months, we're going to see a lot of great things in the book of Ephesians, a lot of great, his riches, and all that he's done, and who we are in Christ. But I'll tell you this, if you're not saved, none of this applies to you. It all comes from God and from our Lord Jesus Christ, from no other place. When we trust Jesus as our Savior, all the riches of God become ours in him. We become instantly wealthy in the things of God. And that's how Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8, verse number 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And Christian, this morning, you are rich. You are rich. You say, my pocketbook doesn't show it. Mine too, we're on the same boat there. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. Spiritually speaking, we are a rich people. And we are going to start a glorious journey through the book of Ephesians here. As we move through this special book, I believe that God's going to do a work in us and feed us with this passage. I believe he's going to challenge our lives and change our church as a result of this study over the next several months. Come each week praying that God will speak to you. And guess what? He will. And if he's spoken to you today, the altar and do something about it in just a moment. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's where it all begins. You can have eternal life. <clears throat> you can have the riches of his grace. But it all comes through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had this morning in your word. We thank you for your faithfulness and we thank you for your love this morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for this wonderful book of Ephesians and the privilege I have to be able to read it and study it and be able to preach your word. 
what an honor and a privilege that I'm not worthy of. But I thank you for that wonderful privilege. Bless our invitation today. I pray that there's someone here this morning that isn't saved, that today they would come to you for salvation. I also pray that if there are some Christians that maybe God, you spoke to them about something in the message, pray that they'd respond to you. And Father, do a work that only you can do. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.